Well, this morning we are continuing our, our study of worship as we start the year this year. Let me just pray for us and then we'll jump right in. Father, we need your aid, your help. story of scripture is the story of your spirit returning to wayward humanity. Because we need your presence. We need your life. We need your aid. So Lord, I'm just asking this morning, Lord, whether we're watching online or whether we're here, would would you help us to be fully here? We have been reading a passage over and over again. Let us offer acceptable worship to God with reverence and awe. Lord, may it be that our gathering this morning, we walk from here, that's doable words. Lord, those are words placed for us to hear that it's doable for us to offer acceptable worship with reverence and awe. So Lord, help us to be available to your word as we seek to hear it preached and taught give our hearts a response that is acceptable, full of reverence and awe. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, um, I'm going to venture us into something in the Old Testament. I think it's very clear, but maybe not to all of us, that this is in the Old Testament very intentionally. A big deal is made out of it. And Uh, Maybe we don't give enough attention to it because we think we're New Testament Christians. What's the deal with this stuff in the Old Testament? But that's not the way we should interact with God's word. Uh, And I titled this The Treasures of the Tabernacle. I'm going to blame this on Nick Missios, who I appreciate came to me a few weeks ago and said, man, we did that message on the, the guy who discovers the treasure in the field. And he said, man, it'd be really great if we could unpack some of those treasures. So I'm going to try and do that. I mean, when Nick said that to me, I thought, man, this series could go on into June and July if we unpack these things a little bit at a time. So I'm going to try and unpack this box called the tabernacle and its amazing treasures that have come to our lives. Remember, I started us with this little box in your aisle and it says worship is an inner human quality or capacity, if you will, that seeks a reason to be expressed and released. It is reactive, so it needs an object to respond to. Worship is a delighting. It's an enjoying. It's a celebrating, an admiring, an adoring, an affection, a valuing, a treasuring. But what is this treasure exactly to us? What is included in this treasure? Well, John MacArthur in his book, Worship, the Ultimate Priority, says, in the Old Testament, worship covered all of life. Good for us to hear that. We need to hear more than that, though. It was supposed to be a continual preoccupation for the people of God. For example, the tabernacle was designed and laid out to emphasize the priority of worship. The description of its details require seven chapters, 243 verses in Leviticus. 
Yet only 31 verses in Genesis are devoted to the creation of the world. The tabernacle was designed, listen, only for worship. It was the place where God met his people. To use it for anything but worship would have been considered the grossest blasphemy. In the tabernacle, there were no seats. The Israelites didn't go there to sit and be ministered to. And they certainly didn't go there for entertainment. They went there to worship God and serve him. If they had a meeting for any other purpose, they had it somewhere else. And John McCarver is going to unpack in his book in the beginning quite a bit of ways in which the church has drifted from this sort of a gathering element. That, that we're here this morning to pour ourselves out before the presence of God. Right now... Uh, this is not the tabernacle, even though buildings sometimes were called tabernacles and they still are. And you might find a church that's called the tabernacle. This is, this is not the tabernacle. So it's not illegal for you to be seated. But it is a little bit of a problem, isn't it? If we're not careful, this posture becomes something to us that can be prohibitive to why we're really here. It can start feeling like, well, I'm, I'm here because I'm here to get something. And quite honestly, the whole universe is designed for us to get stuff. That's not wrong, right? God designed us to receive from him. But worship is about expressing something. It is about getting something for the sake of expressing something. So I, I may mess the whole church up. I haven't cleared this with anybody in the next few weeks. So I'm just warning the administrative team, the children's ministry guys. Um, it would be accurate, I believe, to say, sometimes, you know, people, and I'm, I'm not looking at anybody when I say this, but there, there are some people who come for the preaching, but don't come for that little thing we just did. Um, can I just say the little thing that we just did is why we preach. This isn't the end. Responding to what you're about to hear is the end. Responding to what God reveals to us in his word is really what God is after. So if it's a message on repentance, it's not enough for us to say, hey, I learned a lot about the doctrine of repentance and I took good notes. Did you respond in repentance if you had a need to do that? God's looking for the response. So we learn great things about God not so that we can store up more in an encyclopedia, but that we can respond to him in worship. So I may do this. I don't quite know how it would serve our children's ministries. My only concern, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to preach a message on worship is expressive. And we may preach first and worship second. So everybody who comes 15 or 20 minutes late, you will have missed portion of the message. Uh, and you will not be in good shape to gather in the second half of why we're here. But I, I think that pattern mightn't be something we need to engender in us, right? Please don't choose the church because you, you like the building, you like the chairs, you like that it has a children's ministry, you like that the preacher entertains and, and holds your attention while he speaks. That's, choose a church 
that awakens your heart to God in worship. And if you're sitting for years and years and years in a setting like this and your heart sits dull and unresponsive to God, something's not working right. This is about coming alive to God. That's what worship is about. So the tabernacle is going to help us. Let me just say it's a little bit too reductionistic for us to say, well, the tabernacle, that's that Old Testament thing. Right? Uh, you should never speak that way because the Old Testament is designed by God to do something. So a couple of the things that it does, when you meet the tabernacle, uh, you might get the impression that it comes on the scene in Exodus. But when God explains it and then you watch for it elsewhere in scripture, the introduction to Moses is Moses, build this thing called the tabernacle exactly after the pattern in heaven I'm showing you. So there's a tabernacle on earth and there's one in heaven. So this is not like, oh, we don't have to worry about that. We're going to see today this tabernacle is still not, maybe not this tabernacle, but the tabernacle in the heavens is still spoken of in Revelation. There's something of the tabernacle taking place even today. God revealed something about himself. Secondly, the the Old Testament exists like, like billboards on a highway. They say things to us that are to teach us something. They're tutors that lead us to Christ. How many of you guys know that, you know, if you skip class, you didn't learn something, right? If you skipped a whole grade, you didn't learn something. If you decided to skip elementary school, you'd be in trouble when you got to high school, right? There's things that we learned that made the teaching in eighth grade and 10th grade possible. It's like, oh, oh, I get that. Why? Because I understood second grade and fourth grade and sixth grade leading up to this moment. Well, there's stuff in the Old Testament that you and I have to get that so that we can start to get this. And so please don't reduce this to something that's unimportant. I know I mentioned this in the little mention for Sunday. There are things in the Old Testament, things in this tabernacle that are kind of like little league. Right? Everybody wants to play in the big leagues, and certainly the new covenant is the big leagues. Right? The promises for eternity, that's the big leagues. But in little league is where you learn how to hold the bat, where you learn how to stand, where you learn there's this thing called a ball, and that they're going to throw it, and you're going to hit it. I mean, really, really basic stuff like that. Where do you learn that? You learn that in little league. Nobody gets to the major leagues like, so what's that ball all about? I'm ready to play. I'm ready for the big leagues. Oh, you're really not ready for the big leagues. You got no muscle memory. You don't even know what's going on here. There is a little league presentation in the Old Testament that prepares us for the big leagues. All right, so hear this in this one passage here. I've got a bunch of passages. I'll do my best to get through them succinctly today. Hebrews chapter 12. We've been pulling from the edge of this passage for a while. Let's back up a little bit and read this. Hebrews 12, verse 18. It's New Covenant. You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound like a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I 
tremble with fear. And do you know where this is? This is Mount Sinai. This is God's first meeting. God did not hold, and I say this because I think we need some fresh insight. God did not hold a seeker-sensitive meeting. He freaked everybody out, right down to Moses. Moses is trembling before this God. People are saying, Moses, why did you bring us out here to encounter this? Don't let God speak to us anymore. You speak to us. We would rather hear some. They were freaked out by the presence of God. Now, there's a part of me that I kind of get the discomfort factor. And, and maybe part of me wants to say, hey, keep that, keep that from me. That, that makes me aware of the distinction between God and me in a way that makes me uncomfortable. But there's coming a day where God's got to pull off his promises in your life. There's coming a day where God has to fight your enemies in your behalf. In that moment, do you want to know that God is this kind of a God? Do you want to walk away and remember? I remember the God who showed up at Mount Sinai. That dude can take on anybody. He's got power like I've never seen in my life. So did he freak you out? Yes. Is that going to be good for you at some point? Yes. Do not exchange this view of God for some low, comfortable view. The comfort comes from what he does to give you access to him. He makes high voltage safe for us. He doesn't turn the voltage down and stop being who he is. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you, New Testament saints, you have come to Mount Zion. Not to that. And to the city of the living God. The heavenly Jerusalem. To innumerable angels in festal gathering. To the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And to God, the judge of all. And to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is what you have got. You've not come to Mount Sinai. You've come to Mount Zion. Now, how many guys are reading this the way it's written? Hopefully you're not reading it this way. Listen, you haven't come to that mean old Old Testament God. You've come to Mount Chill. God's like chill now. He's, you know, he, take it easy, man. God's chill. He freaked everybody out in the Old Testament, but he's chill now. Welcome to Mount Chill. No, no, no. The way you read this is you think that was something. You've come to Mount Zion. You've come to the heavenly reality of that thing. You think that freaked people out? Can you imagine? There are angelic beings. You ever read through some of the descriptions? I'm going to read them to you when we get to the warfare part of this. There are angelic beings who are, they're, they're like watching Jurassic Park. I mean, they're like these beings that are like, whoa, that's big. That's, that's intimidating. That freaked people out. And they're as far as the eye could see. It's like Washington, D.C. when people, they gather on the mall and as far as you can see, there's a crowd and they're all making this noise and affected by the presence of God. You've come to that. The God of the universe enthroned over everything. That's what you have come to. 
Interesting description, powerful description. And then Hebrews 12, 28, the verse we've been reading shows up. Therefore, right, and in light of big league worship versus little league worship, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. He was a consuming fire? Is the, is, the, is the verb tense wrong there? He was a Yeah. He showed up on that mountain and he spoke in such a way. And God says this. If you read in Exodus, God says, I showed up and freaked you out on purpose. That's kind of my own translation. But that the fear of me may remain in you. That trumpet sound, I don't think it sounded like, I think it sounded like that's the best description we could give it. It was this loud humming sound and the earth was shaking and there was this, this, this fire going off, but it, it was like it was on the mountain, the mountain remained, but it was just like this consuming fire. And then we get Hebrews 12 and God is a consuming fire. Let us offer to him acceptable worship. With reverence and awe. All right. Can I just invite you into the dilemma of a modern pastor? This isn't Mount Sinai. So every Sunday shouldn't feel like this. But when the church decided decades ago to design these settings for people who didn't know if they liked God wanted to know God, had any respect for God. And, and we're going we're gonna to have a setting where we can come together and talk. We can talk about God. And we can, we can have a place where we can dialogue back and forth. It decided these kinds of settings would begin to feel foreign to this kind of gathering. And churches became just more and more casual and more casual and more about us and more about coffee in the lobby and dress down and take it easy and come when you want and come if you don't want, you know, it, it, it just, it just changed the way we approached God. And th- this is the outflow of that. When God stops being a being that fills us with awe and reverence, at some point he'll stop being an awesome reverential God to us. And we will miss opportunities and moments and exchanges that leave an impression on us. There was an impression made by God showing up this way. When you and I distance ourselves from that impression, our, our God gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And then you and I have a harder and harder time trusting him and looking to him and depending upon him and delighting in him and valuing him above everything else. That gets harder and harder and harder to do. Maybe it's not worth it as much. Hey, this is why Alpha is what it is in our church. You want to come figure out whether God's really God? Ask a bunch of questions? Go to Alpha. But this meeting is not designed for that. I hope you could come and say, I've never even opened the Bible. I hope we could come, but I'm pretty sure I'm going to say some things that freak you out. Because this meeting is for the God of the universe. Not for somebody that casually just drove down Veterans Highway. 
but you're welcome to come. And, and we hope if the high voltage stuff goes off, you won't go, that place was weird. Uh, if I look at a God who's got that kind of power and that kind of awe, there's something about me that that might be different than anything I've considered. I might need that though. That might answer everything about my existence. Maybe I need to get to know him a little bit more so that my life can make some kind of sense, right? But what are we doing here when we come? Is there a reverence and an awe in us when we gather the God of Mount Sinai? He is a consuming fire and he's still the same God. But we've not come to Mount Sinai. We've come to Mount Zion. We've come to the the big leagues. We're in the big leagues. And our sense of God's presence needs an update so that it still has reverence and awe attached to it. Ed Welch's book called Created to Draw Near, he says the tabernacle was a visual representation of God's world along with specific instruction on how this world, people, were to come near to God. Each detail was intended to prepare humanity to recognize Jesus when he came and gathered all these details into himself. This blueprint makes the rest of scripture much more understandable because there are so many references and allusions to it. Interpreted rightly, the tabernacle is both a home and a path. Right now, not a quiz. Don't anybody raise your hands. But if, if you hadn't been helped by Indiana Jones, could you tell me anything in the tabernacle? And yet God put this pattern on earth to make us aware of the treasures that we have in relating to him. Because it's quite a bit about what he's done. Even though we come to worship him, it's about what he's done, right? So can we visit the treasure? I'm going to call it the treasure hidden in the mountain, right? Remember there was that traveler in Matthew 13. The kingdom is like a treasure hidden in a field who a traveler found. And upon finding it in great joy, he went and sold everything, right? He exchanged all the value that he had because he found something more valuable. I want to tell you the story about a nation traveling through the desert who came upon a treasure hidden in a mountain. And the treasures there were worth everything to them. Now, here's how that story sounds. Exodus chapter 24. Now, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring, devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. In chapter 25, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take from me a contribution. Listen, from every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. Every man whose heart, right? Worship is always about heart engagement. It is about genuine affection toward God. Moses, only those whose hearts move them and receive the contribution. And this is the contribution that you will receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, 
oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and stones for setting, for the ephod, and for the breastplate. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly, Moses, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle. He got to visit something and see a pattern. And all its furniture, you shall make it. This is the moment. We sang something this morning. Uh, and Stephen, just an outstanding gift to bless us this morning with putting us before the Lord this way. Lord, you are more precious than silver. You are to me more costly than gold. You understand when we read that, that's what they were singing to God. Lord, I've got this silver. I've got this gold. I've got these stones. I've got these fine skins. I've got these linen yarns. I've got all this stuff that is valuable. This stuff is valuable to me. It will do something in my life. I can buy things with it. I have influence because of it. There are comforts and enjoyments in all the stuff you just listed. But Lord, you are more precious than these things. You are more to me than these things. Your presence among us is more to me than all of these things. I value you, Lord, and I gladly give in response to you. That, that's what's happening in this offering. Look in verse 2. Speak to the people of Israel that they take from me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. Moves him. Every man whose heart is inclined is, wants to move toward God. It wants God. It has affection and delight in it. Oh, how careful do I need to be in my own heart that, that God's calling, connection with me doesn't begin to bug me more than it delights me. Or do you feel like, you know, I, I know all of us, we got a lot going on here, right? I mean, how many, how do we even find time to be here this morning, right? It's like, I mean, this, this meeting is going to slow up your life. It's like, man, I got so much to do today. And then giving, I got so many bills to pay up and so many things going on. I, you know, this stuff can start to bug us, right? When I lose my sense of overflow that Lord, no, no, you're more precious than everything else, God. That's why I give. That's why I'm available to you. That's why I extend my heart to you. And here's this great treasure. Let's just peek inside this treasure chest called the tabernacle. Exodus 25, verse 8. Let them make me a sanctuary exactly as I show you, Moses. I'm going to show you something, Moses. You make this exactly like I show you. So if I could call each one of these things a gym, if you open this tabernacle treasure box that we found in the mountain together and there were gems glistening and we picked them up, what would these gems be? Well, one of them would be the box itself, the tabernacle gym, the whole idea that the God of the universe picked a particular people group and gave them the tabernacle. Have you... Stop to consider that. How valuable to their existence was it that God said, I'm going to give this to you so that my presence can be among 
you. Now, you may not realize how valuable this is until you realize that's the only one on earth. No one else gets a tabernacle. God doesn't say, hey, wait, listen, hey, Israel, I'll be back in just a minute. I got to go finish giving a tabernacle to the Egyptians. And I've got another one that I'm going to be giving to the Assyrians. And then later on, I'll give one to the Romans and I'll give one to the Greeks. And I'm going to give one to this group and that group and this group so that they can all have what I'm giving to you. You do recognize the Bible never teaches that, right? There is no record anywhere of God giving anybody else a tabernacle. How valuable is that in our lives? Deuteronomy 7. God says, for you are a people holy to the Lord. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. I chose you. There's all kinds of peoples on the earth. I'm choosing you to be something treasured and special to me. And by the way, it was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You know, I've interacted with some people over the years who don't like the doctrine of election. And part of me gets that. It's the man-centered part of me that gets that. It's the part of me that tells God, you can't do that. That's not fair. It's the part that accentuates my understanding of the importance of the interests of humanity while I ignore the perfection of God. If there were another way to do this without election that were more perfect, the perfect God would have done it that way. But let me just encourage you in this. Maybe you've been one of those folks who've been in a church where the doctrine of election was mishandled. mishandled. The first step you have to take is, is the doctrine of election in the Bible? You don't get to like it or not like it. You just have to discover if it's there. And you won't be able to read very far without realizing God has chosen to do what God chooses to do. And I don't have to like it or not because me liking God, it's got nothing to do with God being God. I don't know if y'all figured that out yet. God's not sitting around in heaven trying to get me to like him. He is who he is. And he has chosen some things. And this doctrine continues to be a source of rich comfort. The Bible doesn't turn this into a bad idea. It's it's an amazing idea. It brings comfort to my soul, right? You you land in the New Testament and it sounds like this, Ephesians 2 verse 1. Uh, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. You were following the devil, the prince of the power of the air. The spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience. So you're dead, but your only activity is credited to being a devil follower. That's, that's, that's me. And that's us. And then verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy... 
because of the great love with which he loved us. Does that sound like Deuteronomy? God chooses a people, not because of the worthiness of them, but because in him there is a great love that he will not restrain. And he pours it out on whom he will. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. This is a doctrine of election. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I chose you and I put you in a place where I could just keep pouring upon you and pouring upon you and pouring upon you my goodness and my grace. And it's not got anything to do with how much you deserve it. That's a doctrine. What a gem. What a thing to take great comfort in. What a, an awareness that you and I have a relationship with God that you're not going to walk out of here and screw it up. Make it something that no, God chose us in him. What about this? We had some, uh, did I skip my graphic? All right. Here you have this, like, go back to that one for a second. All right, you see all these gathering, these tents? God told them how to lay themselves as tribes out all around them. But, but the thing to catch is the edge of the picture. At the edge of the mountains, on the other side of those mountains, there are other people groups who are not doing this. These guys are aware. They have access to the God of the universe in a way that the people on the other side of that mountain do not. That should freak you out. That should make every one of us very, very humble. Why me? Why do I get that and somebody else doesn't? All right, show me that next one. All right, so when you walked inside that tent, you would have come in contact with that altar would have been the first thing, that first thing you see with the smoke coming up off of it, right? So there's a gym Sitting right there. And God reveals to us. Hey, first order of business. You want to get near to me? First order of business. There's an altar. That has to do with your forgiveness. Ed Welch says, The first object they saw was the bronze altar on which sacrifices were continually offered. The way into the tabernacle <clears throat> necessitated passing the altar. From which blood and death filled the senses. The problem was clear. Stop for a moment. You and I live in a world that likes the idea of a higher power. It doesn't acknowledge there's a problem. It acts as though all you have to do is decide. You want to welcome that higher power to get around you. That's, it's all up to you. <clears throat> What God revealed was there's a problem between us. And the first thing, the first conversation that's had is that gym called an altar where a death is going to take place. The problem was clear. The people needed to be forgiven and cleansed before going into God's house. The solution was also clear. God would accept a substitute or representative in their place, right? We know this scene. If you've read a little bit of the Bible, if you haven't, I can't spend too much time here. 
they, they transferred their sin and their guilt to the animal. And that animal then lost its life. They didn't lose their life. The animal lost its life. And the blood that was shed was going to be sprinkled on their behalf in order to satisfy God. And this is the first thing that they are made aware of. Forgiveness. What a treasure. How valuable is forgiveness to me? Right? When we get into the New Testament, this forgiveness sounds like this in Hebrews 10. The Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is a covenant that I will make with them. After these days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts, write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Okay, this does not mean, please don't over-translate this. This does not mean God had brain fog or forgot. I know we like to say that. It sounds kind of cool. Um, now this, this, this word means that God is not recalling these things in order to require our payment of them. It doesn't mean that he forgot that we sinned. It doesn't mean that he's, he's still trying to figure out why those nail scars are in his son's hands. What was that all about? Oh, you know, I forgot all about those sins. Really, there was sin? That this is not God. But God is not taking our account out and reminding us of it. He is not responding to our sins and our failures and our shortcomings and the things that have been offensive. He is not remembering those things. And how powerful is this? Where there is forgiveness, there is no longer any offering for sin. No longer any offering for sin. You and I live in a moment where there is nothing you can do about your sin and your forgiveness. Nothing. You can't come up with an offering. Can, can you repent of sin? Yes, but, but that doesn't get Jesus to die in your place. The transfer of sins already happened. He's already absorbed the punishment and the wrath and released us from it. Should I respond? Should I confess my sin? Absolutely. But you don't create forgiveness by doing that. The lamb's already been slain on your behalf. I stand with an awareness that there is no offering now for sin. Verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence. So don't, don't, don't stay. Oh, but you don't know what I've done. Since we have confidence to enter the holy place. By the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us, to, these are weighty words when you read the book of Hebrews, let us, oh, feel this, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. All right, in this room, a third of this room is hypersensitive to condemnation. If we did some kind of a brain test, it would probably bear witness. There's about a third. There's another third who you almost, you don't ever care what you did wrong. It's like, uh, whatever. And you don't even pay attention to it. But there's a third here hyper condemned by everything. So there is this little phrase in here. Our hearts are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, from a conscience that works in a way that ignores the valuable riches of this truth. All right. So you might feel that way, but 
The first thing God wants you to be aware of is when you start to draw near from him, you smell, you smell death. Why do we sing so many songs about the cross, about Jesus dying? Because the first thing that's got to get settled for you and I to draw near to God is that forgiveness is a done deal. It's finished. How valuable is that for me to know as I go to do life that I am forgiven? That means something in my heart. And no matter what my personality is, please don't make the mistake of letting your personality be bigger than your doctrine. It's the biggest problem most of us have. I am this way. Everything makes sense to me because I'm like this. Uh, you don't get to bend the Bible into your personality. Your personality is supposed to be bent into the word of God. So this is a done deal. Oh, but I feel so. But this is telling you draw near. This is a treasure. It cannot be a Lego. Little Lego box. Oh, look, there's this little Lego forgiveness. Little Lego. There's there's a bunch of other stuff in my life that are so, so important. But if I just had this, if I had this status... If I could accomplish this thing, if my life could just take on this, if my job could be this and my income could be that and I could be married to this person and I could be this in the church, if I could be all these things, then, oh, whoa, how valuable would that be, huh? Oh, those things pale in comparison to being forgiven by God, therefore being able to access him. See, I forget how valuable these treasures are. I'm shopping for something that's, a Lego. They're not nearly as valuable. All right, I know I'm going to run out of time here. Let me see my temple again. All right, the other picture would have had a laver. I'm not going to go after the laver. All right, a laver there. I'm not going to talk about that because I don't have time. All right, so the other image, hopefully it's not going to be super blurry when you put it back up. Oh, that's not helpful. <laughs> Within that very blurry element there, there are three things sitting in that first chamber that you first walk into, right? Let me just comment on a, a little bit on a couple of them, right? There is this lampstand gem. It is God's gift of light. It is God giving the valuable treasure of enlightenment. The, the world is a dark dark place. Human understanding is darkened, the Bible says. The Bible says a lot about darkness. God gives light. He shines it in spaces that show up in our lives, and it is incredibly valuable. You and I would stumble through this world. We cannot self-light. We don't have light in and of ourselves. Light must come from God. So how valuable is this, right? When we listen to enlightenment by God in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 4. It says, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. This is the human condition of darkened and blinded. There is an acknowledgement by the Bible. And it, the Bible will also acknowledge that, you know, we're darkened without any help from the devil. We're dead. We're in darkness. And we have become darkness. 
And then another layer gets added. There's a being out there who blinds us. So we're in really, really, really bad shape when it comes to seeing anything, which is, which is, this is humbling, right? How did you see anything? How did, how did you see the gospel and respond to it? Have you thought that through? Because the Bible never paints you as somebody who's on the verge of seeing. You're, you see a little. Just need to see a little bit more clearly. No, it, it paints you as dead and blind and being blinded and in darkness. So how, how did you and I show up here today? How did we get to see that God is a treasure and that forgiveness is available and that Jesus did something? How did we get to see any of that? Well, this verse goes on. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, God who said, let light shine out of darkness now. Right? That's what God did. Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. How did you see anything? God spoke into my heart and said, let there be light. And suddenly there was light. It's 1978. And I'm staring at a Bible that I have no interest in. And suddenly God goes, you see that? I wasn't theologically smart enough to have a conversation with God at that point. So I didn't turn around and go, well, actually never before. (laughs) Didn't mean I hadn't read it. I just didn't see it. Now I see it. What else are you showing me? God leads you down a trail. Why why did you see anything? Because God let us see. God gave us light. How valuable of a treasure is that? You have a God who, by the Holy Spirit, turns lights on for us. Causes us to see. And the Holy Spirit shows up and says, and I'm going to lead you into the truth. So maybe I don't have some understanding today. But I have this treasure That God will lead me into seeing some things that I've never seen before. I could see them tomorrow. The Holy Spirit could take me by the hand and two steps further and I see around the corner. Oh, oh, that's what that means. Oh, that awakens hope in me like I've never seen before. God can do that. What a gift. What a treasure this is in our lives. But maybe people got some treasures that we wish we had their treasures instead. Maybe this treasure is like a Lego to us. If I could just have that guy's house, I, you know, if I could drive that kind of car, if I could have that job, if I could make that much money. See, these are, the, these are the treasures that we have been taught by a world that doesn't see. And so we can all of a sudden have the same list that, you know what our lives are waiting for? is for a little bit more of that, a little bit more of that, a little bit more of that. And what about these treasures? What about the God who gives enlightenment to us? Is that valuable to us? 
These are the treasures that were in this setting. I'm going to give you one more before I get to the last one. The altar of incense. What a, what a gem, right? In that little scene there, you have the lampstand, the table of showbread, 12 loaves representing the 12 families, if you will, of Israel who had fellowship and access with God. And then you had this altar that was near to the Holy of Holies and this perpetual aroma coming up off of it before the presence of God. And you got to remember that, you know, God is enthroned over this seat above where the cherubim are behind that curtain. There's a God enthroned there and there's an aroma that's going up before him from this altar of incense. What a treasure. What an awareness about our lives. How valuable is this, right? This is what we learn when Paul comments on, on this aroma and then Revelation as well. Second Corinthians 2, verse 14. Paul says, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God. Can you just chew on that for a second? There is this burning smell going up before the presence of God. Now, God's not a physical being, so he's not behind the curtain doing this. But the imagery there is of something that can be smelled and enjoyed, and it is a sweet aroma. And what is it? It's the aroma of Christ himself. Where is it coming from? It's coming from us. It's coming from our lives. We are an aroma of Christ to God. Your life gets to be an aroma of Christ to God. Is that a Lego? Or is that a jewel like you can't imagine? You're looking for something to make your life meaningful? Aren't we? I want to do so. What would make your life meaningful? Getting married, having children, owning a company, accomplishing something, giving something away. What, what, what are you waiting for? That would make, oh, now, now my life is really. What if God has designed your life wherever it is to, to be lit up by him, the smoke coming off of it? He smells Christ from your life, wherever it is. And just smell great. He, 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 and th- listen to this. Revelation chapter 8. Remember that tabernacle that we thought was Old Testament only? Revelation 8. It's still hanging around. Verse 3. Another angel came and stood at... This is in heaven. Stood at the altar with a golden censer. Right? That's what they would have been doing in that image that you saw earlier. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers... Of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. Where'd you get that image from? Well, it was what Moses mimicked when he built the thing on earth. He saw that in the heavens. There was an enthroned God. There was a golden altar before this God in the heaven. He put that in that tent because he was building what he saw in heaven. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. 
How meaningful are your prayers? What a, what a jewel. What a gem. I, when I pray, my prayers are like bringing an incense before God and he, he takes this in and he smells Christ from my life and he smells the prayers of the saints and they go up. That's what it says. It says this in heaven. There is this burning, smoking thing happen before the presence of God. Part of the aroma is whatever you and I are praying before God. Is this big? Or have we just totally lost sight of things that are eternal, things that are powerful, things that are meaningful? I get to have something go up before the presence of God. And I'm looking for what? I want a promotion? That's okay. Do the best you can. Get a good job. No argument against any of that. But stop feeling like my life doesn't matter until I get to do that or I get to do that or get to wear those clothes or be in this place or live in that neighborhood. Like, you got access to God. You can pray before God. He listens and he smells and he delights. His life is an aroma coming out of you. So, so maybe, you're, you know, maybe you're a mom who's raised a bunch of kids and you, you didn't go to college and you don't own this and you're not an influencer with a gazillion followers, et cetera, et cetera. And you could be sitting here in this world feeling like, so what the heck have I done? Oh, I don't know. Maybe I need to read Revelation chapter eight. I'll tell you what the heck you've done. Maybe you laying your life down like Jesus laid his life down for others for the sake of your children and your family and others that you have served effectively in your life has been a pleasing aroma to God. And you sitting there acting like, ah, I'm nothing. Hey, 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 the God who's been doing this for years, he's not going, you're nothing. He's been delighting in the offering that you've been offering from your life. Absolutely. And whatever else God has maybe called you to do that doesn't have some big earthly headline, some big thing that everybody else is applauding and taking notice of, the God of heaven has given you a life that comes before him, an aroma that pleases him. The closest thing to the Holy of Holies was that altar. The aroma that goes up before God from our lives and from our prayers. Stephen, you come back. But I don't admit, and I don't, I don't have time to develop this, but what's the big deal about this tabernacle? Each one of these things should invade our understanding of being a Christian, of how we walk, what we understand, the things that we value and treasure. God put them in place, emblems, little league, teaching us about big things. But what's the biggest thing going on here? Let them build me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. That I may be uniquely amongst this people in a way. Now, God, yeah, everybody knows this, right? God is present everywhere. Everybody likes that. And, and this is the same kind of an idea of, and all of life is worship too. God is present everywhere. But he's present in this tabernacle uniquely. He's present there differently than he's present everywhere else. And if you read the rest of the Bible, you're going to know that we have become the temple of God. We have become both the dwelling of the church and the individual has become the dwelling place of the presence of God. 
What was the big deal in the tabernacle? What was the big treasure? What was the ultimate treasure for you and I to have in all of life? God himself. Not just something he provides for us. Not just something he does for us and to it. God himself. And next, next week you're going to hear a message from Psalm 73. We're going to do something different next week. We'll call it Psalm Sunday. Something I just want to do throughout the year. Just to, to, to learn some things from the Psalms. We'll scatter them throughout the year. But you're going to hear a man's story in one of the Psalms. Who comes to the place where he recognizes. Of everything else in my life. Who am I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. What was the great treasure, this tabernacle that this nation found at a mountain and they traveled across the desert? It was God's dwelling among us. It, it had help in us understanding how to approach him in that setting. But God himself is the treasure. So here's the challenge for us. There's a, there's a rogue being out there called the devil. He wants to distort and disrupt worship all the time. The greatest way for him to do that is to advertise something else in the place of God. Something else. There's a better deal. There's something better for you. If you and I walk past these jewels and treasures and treat them like Legos, we're done for. We are done for. If there's not something more valuable to us than what the devil's about to offer us, we are done for. So if, if Indiana Jones has been educating us about the tabernacle, we're way behind the game, aren't we? Because God said, hey, I'm going to take a lot of time and develop a lot of thought. And, and Nick, I could have taken a couple of months on each one of these points. But you hear them, right? You hear, we talk about these things all the time. Listen carefully for them. They are valuables. They are treasures. They are worth more than anything else. God has given something to us that needs to reclaim its value to us. Worship is about valuing something. It's about treasure. It's about God himself. Let's stand up together. Father, would you help us just right now to bring our sense of treasure to you in song. To fill these words with a deep affection, every man whose heart moves him. Let him come offer. But right now we come to offer song to you. Come to offer words that represent the condition of our heart, our delight, our deep valuing, our admiration and our affection for you. So Lord, teach us that this is more common and we bring acceptable worship to you. This God who's not merely the God at Mount Sinai. Oh, you are much more. And we are much richer than they could have ever imagined. So Lord, receive from us our affection and our soul.
value you appropriately. God, we love you. We honor you in this place. God, we ask that your word would, would bear fruit in our hearts and in our lives. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen. You guys have a great Sunday. The prayer team's going to come to the front. If you'd like prayer before you leave, they'd be happy to pray for you and with you. You guys be blessed.